welcome to the Vulture TV podcast. I'm your host, Gazella Mami. On this week's show, we're talking to Pamela Adlon, star and creator of Better Things on FX. Plus, we'll do a postmortem on this year's election coverage, and we've got two brand new segments for you on this episode. I'm here with Vulture TV columnist Jen Cheney. Hey, Jen. Hey, Gazelle. Matt Zoller Seitz is away today, but he'll join us for a special new segment later in the podcast. So, as I mentioned, we have a couple segments that we haven't done before on this week's show, and this first one is called The Prompt. So this is going to be a little bit different every week, but basically how it works is we're going to have one of us throw out a provocative question to kick off our discussion. And this week we're going to be playing a quick round of casting director where we pick a show and each of us gets to pick an actor from the show who we we wish we could recast. So drum roll. This week's show is Gilmore Girls, which returns for a new season this month on Netflix. So... I have a feeling we might have the same choice here, same Jen. Same answer. I have, I have <laughs> I, a feeling we do, too. Yeah. Should we say it on three? I think so. <laughs> okay. Wait, are we going to say the name of the character or the actor? The actor. Okay. One, two, three. Alexis, Alexis Bledel. Oh, we're terrible So people. sorry, Alexis. <laughs> you know, it's weird. Like, the question of recasting, it's like... I don't it doesn't necessarily mean that I actually want her to be recast because I can't imagine anybody else in the role. You know, you dance with the one that brung you in a way like (laughs) and she's Rory Gilmore. And I'm a I'm a huge fan of the show, but I think she she gets a lot of flack for not being the best actor and feeling a little unnatural in her role. And I, I think for me, more than anything, it's kind of her body language and how she um, just how her presence on camera, which has always felt a little bit just um, too self-conscious. And part of it, it feels like, you know, it's maybe part of her character, especially as an awkward teen. But I think as she gets older, it just becomes a little bit more. Um, there's there's a bit of an affect to it that feels like you, you notice that she's acting. Yeah, I mean... I feel like as the, the series went on, her acting bothered me less. And maybe that's just because I, I became more used to her as Rory. And like you said, I, I couldn't imagine someone else doing it. So I just maybe overlooked certain things. But what actually jumps out at me is that so much of what is great about that show is the the dialogue and the rat-a-tat-tat quality of it. Uh, and just being able to just go back and forth and ping pong uh, in the way that you need to do and I think um, Lauren Graham, it comes very naturally to her, and it has never come naturally to Alexis Bledel, I don't think. I think she got better at it, like I said, but there was always something kind of off about it. And even just sometimes things aren't even articulated as well. Boy, I, I really don't want to be too mean, but I, she's <laughs> no, her I, character I, is supposed to be an incredibly intelligent young woman, and I don't always believe that. Not that I think that she's dumb, but do I think that she's smarter than Paris? Mm, I'm not sure. Not all right. the time. And are we supposed so, to? It makes it hard to believe that she would necessarily be a great journalist. In like in the in the way that they characterize her as this kind of young ingenue, she doesn't quite live up to it. Like the writing, the writing kind of is there, and it feels like maybe there needs to be 
a little more done on the acting side in this case. Yeah, I mean, my my feeling is, and I, I am one of those people who didn't watch Gilmore Girls when it was originally airing. It was one of those things where I was always like, I should be watching that show, and then I never did. And so I started binging it once it was on um, mm-hmm. Netflix. And the feeling that I was having, especially when I first started, is, you know, this is a really great show, and I still think it's a very great show, but, uh, but I was like, how much better would it have been with a different Rory, though? I, I think in some ways I, I did kind of get more used to her as you said Jen as it went on partially because Rory becomes a little bit more of a jerk and the way that she behaves kind of seems to fit a little bit more with that characterization is there anybody else on the show that you think should have been yeah could have been recast I was thinking about that and I think I would probably choose Michelle but I don't know that that has as much to do with the acting as it does with the writing um, mm-hmm. But I think that his performance is so one note all the all the way through where he's kind mm-hmm. of always giving the same delivery and having the same attitude that I think it is partially the lines that are written for him. And he's kind of meant to be this background character that is kind of one note. I don't know. I, I, could, I could imagine someone having maybe a little bit more fun with it. I mean, the only other one um, that... I thought about it. I would never recast this, by the way, because he's a wonderful actor. The only thing that often jumps out is, of course, that Edward Herman is constantly he, – he couldn't be there for all of the episodes. And so there's constantly like, uh, he's away. Richard's right. away. Get on business. You know, um, I would never recast that role because he's amazing. And, you know, he was he was a wonderful actor who uh, did a lot of great things. That I, But I think he's going to be remembered for being on the Gilmore Girls probably more than yeah. anything else. Um, it's less about recasting and more that I wish that he had been a presence in more episodes than he was. You just want more Richard than yes. less. I, yes. I have the opposite response. I want more <laughs> of Edward Herman. Yes. So that's this week's prompt. Listeners, if you'd like to weigh in on this week's prompt or if you'd like to suggest a prompt for a future week, please email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. Or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. Next up, we're joined in studio by Pamela Adlon. Pamela Adlon co-created the FX series Better Things with her longtime collaborator, Louis C.K. In it, she stars as Sam, a single mother of three and former child actor, who's still hustling in Hollywood to make a living. Mom, I hate you. If you really want to upset me, you got to come up with something new. Okay, well, how about this? You're short and you're getting old. Okay, good one. As we approach the season one finale, we are very excited to have Pamela in studio with us here today. Pamela, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. We're huge fans of the show at Vulture, and I wanted to start just talking about more broadly when you were kind of planning out the show. It's it's a lot more character driven as opposed to plot driven. And I'm curious, you know, what were the things that you wanted to be through lines kind of like throughout the series? For me, what I had pitched to John Langraff, who's the uh, head of FX, um, who is really just the most perfect executive in the world because he's like the anti-executive. I said, you know, I want to elevate the mundane. I just wanted to show real life stories. It was it was crucial for me that the show feels authentic 
and um, natural. For years, people would look at me with my daughters and us, you know, we'd, I remember feeling this feeling one time, like we'd be walking down the street and it would feel like reservoir dogs, the four of us. And I would think, I wish somebody would take a picture of me (laughs) with the girls because there's not a lot because usually they're taking pictures of themselves or each other and it's not the four of Mm -hmm. us. And I saw us very cinematically, you know, and people also would say, you guys should do a reality show. And one of my daughters was like, Mom, it's totally true. We could totally do, like, a Kardashian. We could get a lot of money. We'd be rich as fuck. (laughs) And I'm like, we're not doing a reality show. But so um, the other thing is that for a long time, being single in my 40s in Los Angeles, um, you know, you just all of a sudden realize oh my God, really, I don't exist anymore to men. Like, they just stop kind of engaging with you on a pheromone level Mm -hmm. or whatever you would call it. You know, it's just something kind of just shuts off and you realize, oh, the men my age who are single are going after 25-year-olds. I spoke to one friend of mine and she said, uh, you know, it's because you're in L.A., You know, if you moved back to New York, you'd be picking dick out of your pussy. But you're in L.A. and whatever. And I'm like, well, you know, I mean, this is where I'm raising my kids, you know, what have you. Um, I was interested in the fact that me and my friends, um, we don't wear high heels and, uh, you know, makeup to uh, go to lunch or something like that. It's like, I'm going to go meet my friend Susie and she's going to be like, uh, you know, she's she has gray in her hair and we're not quaffed and whatever. We're just living regular life. I wanted to see what that would be like. What kinds of stories have you been hearing just, I mean, it, in terms of the reaction, especially in terms of single mothers who don't usually get represented yeah. this way on television. Well, you know, I mean, men are coming up to me saying, I was raised by a single mom. And then I have people coming up to me, you know, I had um, one of my office PAs who's like a 22-year-old boy. You know, my youngest daughter was in the editing room with me all summer. And then um, my other daughters would come in and out. And he said, you know, Pamela, I got to tell you, I have a brother and a sister, and um, I look at you, and it makes me want to talk to my mom more. And he said, you're really doing everything. Because he would see my youngest in the editing room with me and my daughters and me working and then going and cooking dinner. And he was inspired, and he's a 22-year-old boy. You know, everybody's part of a family. So um, it was important for me, even though I'm the I'm the face of women now or whatever. (laughs) It was important to me to not be too vag centric. It's an inclusive world that I want to represent. Two of the things you just talked about, uh, certainly parenting and aging uh, resonate with me as an old mother myself. Uh, so even though I'm not a single mother, a lot of it is just recognizable if Absolutely. you have kids, period. 
you did an interview with one of our colleagues, Marina Elena Fernandez, where you said motherhood is hugely about guilt. And you're like, I'm not doing this right. Whenever there is a conversation where you lift your skirt up and show everybody how you're doing things, it's massively important. Yeah. And I think your show really does that um, in, in so many different ways. I was wondering, did you struggle with that idea, um, especially in younger motherhood, where you were like, I'm not doing this right? And mm-hmm. did writing the show kind of help you work through that in some way? You know, I just got emotional when you quoted me because it's, because it's so cool because, you know, these interviews sometimes, and I said this to one of my best friends, Robin, because she's always like, honey, be careful. Because I tell everybody everything, but <laughs> it's these times when we're sitting here, it's it's like therapy for me because I don't go to therapy. It's something that I feel I hope is an anachronism that women don't share with each other anymore or, um, you know, even people. Because I used to look at other moms and I would call them robot moms and I would never like feel like I could measure up, you know. And I've always had, like, self-esteem issues. Uh, You know, it's just, what can I do? I can share my experiences and um, say things out loud and um, know that people are grateful to see and hear certain things. And, you know, I mean, I fuck up things all the time with my kids when people share with each other, it's just uh, pushes you forward when you have a conversation. I mean, you're obviously pulling from your own life, like you said. Uh, how do your your friends and, and your daughters, your mom, do they watch the show? How do they respond when they go, wait a minute, I remember that kind of that conversation or, or that moment? Oh, yeah. My mom saw um, the Brown episode with Lenny Kravitz. Oh, yeah. Um when the my mom character makes that speech and she says, I know why you put that in. My mother never actually said <laughs> those words. She never said that. Somebody else in my family said it, but it wasn't her. <laughs> so uh, we put it in her mouth. But um, my mother's thrilled to be part of any conversation right now. And my friends and I had a party Uh, A couple weeks ago and my mother came over and we had food and drink and everything. And one of my best friends, Jonathan, was staying with me. He came in from New York and the next morning my mother comes in like Gandalf wearing a robe and she's like, hello, I didn't like that one person. She asked too many questions, and I'm like, what are you talking about? And she's talking about one of our best friends who's, like, the coolest person in the world. And she said, no, she was asking too many questions. So I said to her, you ask very many questions, don't you? And I was like, Mom, you can't do that. You can't do that. Otherwise, you're not invited over. And she said, well, you wouldn't have so much material for your show then, would you? And I'm like, she's fucking she's, got me. She knows. I'm, I'm mining gold from shit. <clears throat> My daughters um, are very proud of the show. And certain things, they're like, you can't do that because I didn't do that. I'm like, because it's not you, baby. It's not you. And you've said that your kids are you know, somewhat involved in the show creatively and they helped cast 
The... Yeah, they all had their picks for for wow. casting the girls, and um, now they're pitching ideas to me, and they're saying, "Oh, mom, you have to put that in the show. You have to put this in the show." And certain things, they're like, "You can't do that in the show, okay, mom? <laughs> you're just doing that so that could be in the show, mom." I I don't even front. I know what you're doing. Does that happen where you're kind of like you? It's hard to separate. Well, it is. I mean, it's like I'm I was in my kitchen last month and one of my best friends was there with her husband and her sons and I'm cooking for everybody. My kids were all upstairs and I'm sitting there in the kitchen with a dirty kitchen trying to get to the next thing. And I called up, can anybody help me? And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm just like that lady on that show. (laughs) And I realized it was me. (laughs) <laughs> so it is it is a little bit difficult sometimes to separate right now. Is there anything that you consider out of bounds? Like, oh, I would never go there? Or do or, or you just evaluate that as you go? I am evaluating it as I go. I really don't want the show to um, be about what happened to the dad or the ex. Why don't we have this explained? Let everybody decide what it is. You know what I mean? That's, again, another great uh, benefit to having the freedom to work with FX and and not have a writer's room where everything is vetted, you know? I don't feel the need to flesh out every single story that happens. It's like this thing happened with... You know, Lenny Kravitz's character in Brown, you know, are they going to hook up? Aren't they? I I liked, Mm -hmm. you know, Louie and I felt it was more interesting and satisfying that these two people acknowledge this connection and don't act on it. And it's very crackling and exciting not to see them, to see them not hook up. What I love about the show is that everything feels very natural, and obviously that's very much part of the sensibility of it. Um, but one of the scenes, I think it's in, it's the episode where there's a party and all of uh, Sam's friends are over, and it's when Max makes that whole speech about feeling like she's already blown it in life. Um, that was a scene that really stuck out to me. Is like, this just feels genuinely like a bunch of friends hanging out. And I'm sure it was all scripted, but a lot of shows try to do that, and, they, and you can tell they're trying. And on your show, it just feels very organic. Thank you. I appreciate that. And yeah, that was um, completely scripted. Um, And Diedrich's there. Chris Williams is there. Lucy Davis, Rebecca Metz, um, and Max sitting there with us at the end of the night, uh, you know, had Duke in my arms sleeping. This is the way life is. Um, We don't need to point out who each person is. This scene, particularly, Louis wrote this scene. And Louis wanted to make this connection for Max with the way, you know, this is the way my friends and I do. And I think a lot of people do. They just, you sit and you're having a conversation and, you know, it's wonderful to see um, this kind of thing play out and Duke wake up and say goodnight to people and you see that they're all connected somehow and then this teenager all of a sudden is enervated and just is like I don't know what I'm going to do with my and then the moment where I start saying oh honey you're going to be fine and Rich goes Sam like shut the fuck up she's talking I'm like what why can't it be me 
But Sam gets this amazing gift from her daughter. She's talking about what's going on inside of her. And it's a huge thing. All of the actors in the room at that scene, Lucy, Rebecca, Chris, Diedrich, um, Celia, when she came in, uh, were blown away. And they couldn't stop talking about it. Uh, Diedrich and Chris were like, I can't believe what we're doing right now. And, you know, all of us have been working for years. I wanted to talk about another favorite of mine from the season, which was episode four, uh, when you are up for the lead role mm-hmm. in a pilot, and then in the end you get up, you, you end up being passed over for Rachel McAdams. And I just love the whole structure of this episode and how you have the men who are kind of being a little holier than thou, mm-hmm. and then the women who you're not sure, quite sure why at first, but they have this foresight and they're ultimately trying know how things are going to end Yes. Up. Um, and I, I just love the way you played that. And one of the things I was most struck by was the directing and how you kind of focus in on the women's faces. And I've noticed that a lot throughout the season. Yeah, it's interesting. If you're hearing a conversation, maybe a one-sided conversation more, and you focus in on somebody else's face, you know, mm-hmm. that is the recipient. and not actively involved. I thought it would be interesting to do an episode based on people's perception of me, of Sam. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking about it in terms of my daughters talking about their mom and then my friends talking about me. And really, I'm not involved in the episode so much. It's more just like that. And then uh, Louis thought he put a spin on it and... um, he knows that I love the Duplass brothers, so he wrote it with Mark and Jay in mind, um, <clears throat> who were too busy, <laughs> um, which is great because we got Zach and Danny, who were yeah, awesome. But awesome. and he he made it a professional situation, and I just thought that was so brilliant because a lot of times you don't know about things that people are talking about. And then once in a while, I would get wind of stuff in my career that somebody's like, oh, you know, you were on Sean Penn's shortlist for actors Mm -hmm. that he wanted to work with. And, it, you know, somebody told me that once. And I was like, are you fucking serious? (laughs) Well, I I was curious why. I mean, I loved the effect of it having this beautiful ending. But did you ever debate having a more kind of doing what you're saying here, which is that kind of disappointment that comes with finding out. No, it was never meant to be that way because it's like, you know, in the end, when the teacher says, you should come with us to Stockton, Mm-hmm. And her daughter says, mom's always working. She's she's like, she's never around. And he looks at her and he says, that's good, Frankie. Your mom's an earner. Yeah. And she's like, I know. <laughs> but I'm just kind of like inside. Sam's like, oh, fuck this. You know, like I want to, I don't want all these moments to be slipping through my fingers. So it's just, uh, it was a great way to, to show that. Most of the episodes are written by you and Louie. That's, mm-hmm. is that right? Mm-hmm. And I, could you talk a little bit about what your writing process is like? What we'll do is one of us will write something and we won't email it to the other person until they're like ready on Skype because we're very precious about the material and it says do not read and like poison signs and skull and crossbones <laughs> and everything. 
until we are connected. So then we'll read out loud with each other. Then we just start riffing and we start coming up with ideas and we're writing while we're having that conversation. When we did the Louis episode, um, when I go to the airport and he's saying goodbye. I don't know if you guys watched Louis mm-hmm. and and I say, wait, wave to me. And he says, wait, wait for you. <laughs> right. And I say, no, wave to me, dummy. And I'm far away. And he's like, wait for you. I will wait for you. Was a conversation that we were having that we were mishearing each other. And I said, <laughs> oh, my God, I thought you said wave to me. That's an amazing part of the way we have the same kind of um, voice when we're writing together, which is why it's probably difficult for me to like outsource and get other people to write my show. It's been very fruitful because we've been collaborating for 11 years. So this is a random question that I'm curious to get an answer to. Um, The most recent episode that aired, Joe Walsh is in it. Yes. (laughs) That would be National Hotel Trashing Treasure, Joe Walsh. Um, how did how did he end up in the episode? Like, you know, Joe Walsh? Like, what? what how did that happen? OK, this is the greatest thing. <laughs> Joe Walsh was a very happy um, occurrence that just came about like he is friends. I'm friends with Irving and Shelley Azoff, and um, they are like the godfather and godmother of my show. When they saw my pilot, they were like, this is everything, kid. You keep going and let us know what we can do to help you. And um, my music supervisor, Linda Cohen, had said, uh, we could get Joe Walsh for you. You know, I originally had written it for the Red Hot Chili Peppers, which was impossible. (laughs) Um, Then Joe Walsh happened. I died. I couldn't believe it. And he not only showed up with his band on time with his gorgeous wife, Marjorie, and his tour manager, Smokey, and at the freaking Avalon in Hollywood and um, did Life's Been Good live five times, front to back. And my entire crew and all the rent to cops and all my uh, extras the uh, the most that I could afford <laughs> they he started to play life's been good and I'm bawling crying hysterically holding up <laughs> my phone I mean I wish I could have put more in the show but I couldn't and it was just this amazing thing and then you know his dialogue on the stage saying you know, I they tell me I was here, but I don't remember. They tell me we had a good time, <laughs> and it was everything. Yeah, that is awesome. One thing that you kind of see a lot on the show is men being dicks in the industry. Like in the episode six, you're filming a pilot with yeah, this yeah. guy who is like, "Well, it's it's my pilot, so it's harder for me." Kind of a thing. Um, how much? How much is this kind of? this part of the show called from your own experience? All of it. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much everything. You know, it's, it's, um, you know, I remember Grant Hesloff and George Clooney did a show called Unscripted and um, with Steven Soderbergh for HBO. And so they brought 
I remember it was me and Laura San Giacomo and one other lady actress. And they sat us in a room and they said, we need you guys to tell us about your experience with being female in the business and men being disgusting. You know, and so we basically like talked about it and it's shocking, you know, and this was 18 years ago. Um, so we had gone through the 80s and the 90s of that. So it never kind of ends. And everybody's got those stories. Yeah. You know, just people being inappropriate, you know, talking right into your mouth, grabbing the side of your tit, you know, you know, making Jesus. you, you know, read a certain scene or do a certain gross thing. This was really said to me in real life. Um, somebody that I was working with said, uh, you're my kind of woman, slap a pair of tits on you, you're just my type. So, you know, we put God. it in the show. One thing that I'm curious about that I've just been thinking about while I've been watching Westworld is just that you see so many perky boobs on television. Oh, yeah. And I'm just curious. Is Westworld filled with perky It titties? is filled with perky, perky titties. Okay. And how much does that come up in casting where it's like, you wouldn't even be considered for a part if you didn't have the right boobs. Yeah. Because it's obviously not representative of most women in a lot of ways. Well, also, it's like an ideal or whatever. But it's like, you know, I feel like um, what was revolutionary for me was uh, Lena Dunham's show Mm -hmm. and Jenny Connor's show, Girls. Because, you know, the fact that they just were, you know, regular people and that Lena is doing nude scenes and uh, you know unabashed and she didn't have the ideal body was a revelation to me besides everything else about that show yeah and um I'm just not that fucking interested in perky titties I you know I mean I'm more familiar with uh longer breasts or you know breasts with the stretch marks mm-hmm. or anything like that which i was exposed to when i used to go to the y when i lived on the upper west side and you'd be in the locker room with all the ladies with all the different shaped bodies you know that's real life so um i i feel like that's probably is Westworld about like robots? Is it, it is, like and the, that's part of it. Yeah, but I mean, I, I I do feel like it's something that I've noticed. Just you know, in terms of the variety of boobs, yeah, featured when you see a nude woman on TV or film. Yeah, um, am I going to get assigned a think piece on this? <laughs> <laughs> just yeah. planting the seeds, Jen. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's like <laughs> I just feel like so much stuff is like we're past it. Mm-hmm. We're past that kind of thing. The thing about ideals, I think, is over. I'm owning the age that I am. I'm owning who I am. My kids are owning their themselves. I would have been devastated if I had, you know, unshaved legs when I was a teenager and armpits. And now all of them are, like, so fucking hairy, except <laughs> they have no bushes, which is bizarre to me so it's, we still have a little ways to go <laughs> <laughs> we're still really fucked up yes exactly well thanks so much for joining us Pamela thank, yes, thank you so much thank you guys appreciate it
The 2016 presidential election comes to a close today, and one way or another, we'll find out what our future will hold. And we haven't talked about it too much on this show, but there have been plenty of moments on TV when TV and reality have seemed kind of strangely similar this year, with reality often being the stranger of the two. And we've also seen some great coverage on TV from both TV news anchors and late night hosts. So, you know, there's a lot to mine here, and we wanted to do a little postmortem on the election today. And joining us is Vulture's Joe Adalian. Joe, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Gazelle. I wanted to start by talking a little bit about late night, because probably one of the biggest figures in elections past has been Jon Stewart, and there has been no Jon Stewart this year. And I'm curious what you both think about what has happened to the field of satirical election coverage this year, and if there's anyone you think who's filled a similar role. You know, it's, you know, for especially for liberals and progressives who've sort of needed Jon Stewart more than ever, uh, early on it was sort of a giant absence that was felt. Um, and I do think the sort of that nightly sort of reassurance of having someone sort of express the insanity of what's going on in this most insane of elections um, was certainly felt. But I think in the last couple of months, um, that, that gap is closed. Uh, part of it has always been closed uh, this election cycle, I think, by Samantha Bee, um, who is unfortunately only once a week, and she's even taken some vacation. God forbid anyone have a vacation, but she's taken some vacation weeks when, uh, you know, throughout the cycle. But she's certainly been sort of the loudest, most clearly sort of articulated force against um, the, the Trump phenomenon out there. Uh, as, as has to a lesser degree, John Oliver. Uh, I mean, John Oliver has certainly, you know, he came up with the whole Donald Trump thing, and he was early, whatever. But he's sort of been much more of the like the whole election's messed up. So he's he's been there. Um, Seth Meyers has sort of stepped up on on NBC, um, but but yeah, sort of the Daily Show has been one of the biggest losers. I mean, they're they're just there's been very little resonance. I can't remember a single thing in the last few months that's gone viral from The Daily Show. I agree with you. I think Samantha Bee and, and John Oliver, who used to be on The Daily Show, both of them, uh, have been the, the strongest figures. And, and you're right that Oliver hasn't been hitting the election as consistently. But at the same time, I think what I like about his show is that he does take on issues that no one else is talking about. So I think he's been trying to continue doing that and doing some segments on things that have really nothing directly to do with the election, while also occasionally doing really good, often takedowns of Trump, but not exclusively. Like, he did the best, I think, that I saw explainer of the scandals where he walked you through the Hillary email stuff and then followed it up with, let me explain what a disaster Trump is. Uh, and it, and it, was, it was the most clear thing that I have seen on that, at least television-wise. Um, but I think what we're seeing with this election... And it goes back to what Gazelle brought up originally with it's not just that Jon Stewart is gone. It's that I feel like the way that we watch late night television, which was already changing the last time Obama was elected, but I think has even changed more in the last four years, is that it's not appointment television anymore. It's let me watch the clips the next day on YouTube. I mean, I have HBO and I love John Oliver and almost invariably I experience him by watching the segments broken down on YouTube the next day, even though I could easily turn on HBO, whereas, you know, when John Stewart was on The Daily Show, it was it was appointment television. It was like every night I need this. It's my my self medication. For 
for people looking to survive the election, you need to sort of choose your own adventure of sort of putting together um, uh, components, you know, through different viral, viral, viral videos or different shows. You know, you do a half hour of Oliver, a half hour of B. You can maybe find a monologue from Seth Meyers once a week that sort of hits it out of the park. And also, let's also say, you know, to me what's been interesting is, um, you know, everyone sort of expected that, you know, uh, having Stephen Colbert on CBS's Late Show uh, would sort of establish CBS and, and the Late Show as sort of the primary sort of the new Daily Show, right? There was a thinking when he started, like, ah, he's coming in right in time for the election season. He's going to own this. And early on, he was sort of slow to embrace that. It's because the show was sort of finding itself and seemed like it didn't want to have an opinion. It wanted to, uh, to reach for a broader audience and not seem like it was too much like Colbert's show, the, the Colbert Report, uh, and going liberal. Um, and so I think it was sort of a muddled mess. Sort of around the time of the conventions, though, I think that that uh, even Colbert has sort of found his voice, and he's delivered some really strong monologues and segments, I think, um, that, that, mm-hmm. has, that has gotten better. But he's also been hurt by the same uh, trend you talked about, which is people not watching um, in real time. It's also different, I think, than the last eight years, because I think, especially among sort of elite liberal comedians, let's call them that, um, uh, as elite liberal journalists discuss these elite liberal comedians. Um, I think with uh, Obama for the last eight years, there's been this absolute love affair. And his his challengers, especially Romney, who was sort of uh, not as loathed as Trump has become, but certainly sort of seen as the bad guy, and Obama was a good guy. I think especially early on, it was a little more of a muddled mess. There was a strong component of, especially with Colbert and and and, and Oliver, of sort of, we kind of like this Bernie guy. Samantha B sort of separated herself from that early on by sort of, uh, I, I talked about this in the story I did for Vulture this week, sort of, she was unabashedly like, yeah, I'm with her, and sort of taking on Bernie when need be, and Bernie supporters particularly. Um, so that's been, I think, a, a big difference in the coverage, too, is you didn't have this... There was there's a clear black and white this time in terms of Trump bad, but I think the other side has not always until recently been as clear. What have been some of your favorite segments? You know, we're talking about this new way of consuming election coverage and just late night television in general in this kind of morning after viral clip kind of way. Have there have there any in particular that have stuck out to you? The one I mentioned earlier that John Oliver did about the scandals and comparing Clinton and Trump side by side and really walking you through it. And and that's what I like about John Oliver is that, yeah, he inserts the jokes, but it really feels like you're listening to a piece that has been very carefully researched and that he's trying to break it down so that you can understand the issues um, as easily as possible. Now, many of Hillary's most famous scandals have been heavily litigated in the past. For instance, uh, Ro- uh, Whitewater. Now, more than six years of investigations by three different prosecutors and multiple congressional committees failed to find sufficient evidence of wrongdoing. Then there was Benghazi. Now, eight congressional investigations broadly concluded the State Department could have done more to increase security at the embassy, but none found evidence of wrongdoing by Clinton. And then there is the problematic issue of the Swiss file transfer. And while, yes... Investigators found Hillary was in Zurich at the time of the transfer, and documents show she was aware the transfer took place, and yes, the Clintons did have something to gain financially from it. The fact is, the Swiss file transfer is something I just made up right now. (laughs) But the very fact that for a second you kind of remembered it says something about the tone of coverage surrounding Clinton. The one that Samantha Bee did um, earlier this week about 
Donald Trump not being able to read was very funny. It's amazing. <laughs> so those two really, really stuck out in my mind. Something I just wanted to say, though, that I didn't get to mention earlier is that I do still wonder, like, what would Larry Wilmore have been able to do if they had kept his show on Comedy Central? You know, they canceled that uh, right as the election cycle was really heating up. And it wasn't doing well. And you can understand why from a ratings perspective. But I feel like he might have brought something really interesting and unique to the table had he been able to continue being on the air. I, I am curious, you know, Joe, if you have any insight on this as to, you know, why didn't they just wait a few months? You know, uh, let him... Simply mm-hmm. because it would have meant spending money on a show that was um, sort of not working. It would have meant, um, you know, signing short-term contracts with a lot of people because the contracts were up. Mm. Um, and and there was not seen as much of a benefit. And there was no indication that the show was, even in the early months of the election, there was no sign that during the primaries that it was getting any sort of rating surge or even any viral. But I, I'm sort of a little bit, I, I love Larry Wilmore personally. I've known him for 15 years ago, not like good friends or anything. I think he barely knows who I am, but I've interviewed him several times on his uh, when he's been a writer on shows. And he's just a really smart, talented guy. I mean, he's now behind two of the better comedies to emerge over the last five years in Blackish and Insecure, having a role in both of them. He's a producer on Insecure, correct? Yes, he, yes, yes. he kind sure. of co-created it, but then yeah, had to step exactly. away. So yeah, exactly. He, so he, he is... He is truly a talent. I think he's very smart. I never could get into a show, and I was disappointed in part because I felt it was trying to be sort of a weak sauce version of the old Daily Show. When I, when I really wanted was politically incorrect, the old school Comedy Central show, but revived with an interesting panel of smart people just talking about smart stuff. But anyway, we don't need to <laughs> speak ill of the dead, uh, and we'll see. I think Comedy Central needs to redefine whether it wants to still be in that sort of game mm-hmm. um, of viral buzz for politics or just sort of find a new audience. Um, in terms of, by the way, my favorite segments, I just want to point mm-hmm. out, too, um, um, I, I actually think um, Sam did a great one during the primary season just um, talking to sort of uh, Bernie Sanders supporters in Nevada, uh, which is where I'm based, um, and, and sort of talking about how you know we often sort of accuse people on the far right of being enthralled to conspiracy theories or making up their own facts, and she sort of very coherently showed how that was happening uh, on the left and how sort of this sort of love of Bernie was clouding some people's vision um, and sort of exposed how, like, well, no, the facts don't actually support anything you're saying. Um, and so I thought that was a really wise, smart segment. She also did one last week uh, interviewing real-life Russian trolls. That was just sort of 60 minutes worthy in, in that she went to Russia and actually interviewed people whose sort of job is to spread pro-Trump propaganda. <laughs> and it's sort of was sort of stunning to see how this actually went down. Do you sometimes like to create misinformation? Sometimes. It, it, it's needed. The ultimate goal in my work is uh, we have three markers. So one goal is... Peace off. Fucking enrage people. Yes. Goal number two... Changing the opinion. Change people's minds. What's yes. goal number three? When your opponent just... Shut up. Okay. Completely silence this discussion. You just shut it down. Yes. And while some trolls work nine to five in office buildings, others just do it from home. It's nice to work from home. Of course. Subvert democracy in your jimmy jams. Yes. So chaos worldwide in your trackies. Yes, yes, yes. Like the big boss in my bed. In terms of uh, coverage that hasn't been as good this year, uh, Jimmy Fallon is one who got a lot of flack for kind of sucking up to Trump and tousling his hair. And um, I'd love to talk a little bit about just, you know, why why do you think the backlash was so harsh? 
in that case, you know, what it, what damage, if anything, it did to Jimmy Fallon's image? I don't know if it's a long-term damage in that Fallon's brand has never been about politics. Um, you know, I, I think there was a lot of reaction at the time because Trump had to, had happened to be in one of his low points of sort of hatred among liberals. Uh, is that such a thing? It's sort of constant, I guess. But um, and it just sort of seemed as oh, you're normalizing evil. And and I think you know those are sort of of the campaign moments. I think at the end of the day, um, Fallon has never positioned himself as a serious show. I, I think morally he should look himself in the mirror. Uh, I think Lauren Michaels should. You know the fact that he allowed. Uh, Trump to host SNL after Trump's you know announcement speech where he just called Mexican rapists and murderers. Um, that should have been the first time. Like, okay, he's he's different. He's not the Donald that's been on SNL before, and we should have just treated it as another candidate, especially in the primary process. I I, I think Lauren was sort of um, you know thinking too much like a TV producer and not as a smart citizen myself. Uh, mm-hmm. But you know. It'll all be forgotten if uh, Trump, uh, by the time you're listening to this, if he's been defeated. If uh, if he's elected, uh, I think that there will be some thinking of like, oh, this is how fascism comes to America. That's sort of broad and, and sweeping and probably a little overdramatic. But I think if that does happen, I think events like that will take on much more import. And I think people will look back and say, ah, here are all the different ways in which uh, we sort of did that when we had the chance. Well, I have two things on on Fallon. Um, one is that I, I agree with Joe that uh, I don't know that it's really going to or has hurt his um, reputation in a long term way. I think what he has always been relatively smart about is that he has built his show around his strengths, um, which depending on your taste, you may not care for or you might. But that is, you know, doing these silly games, doing impressions of Neil Young, like all that stuff that Fallon is really good at and he's affable but he is such a bad interviewer like I will turn on his show wanting to watch an interview and I'm like oh my god I can't I can't I got to change the channel like it just makes me uncomfortable and so I think his treatment of Trump highlighted his his biggest flaw and this may be just me bringing my particular feelings to it but I, I have a feeling other people maybe had the same sentiment which is it just reminded us my god we need David Letterman like we just we don't have a David Letterman and and Letterman you know, would if Trump had been on his program, and, and we saw him do that with Trump repeatedly when, when he was still on the air. We had a, uh, you know, we had a little website that cost $5 billion, and it still doesn't work, the Obamacare website, which Does, is a sure very It sad, doesn't work at all? It's, it's working a little bit, but it's not working very well, I can tell you that. Are you, are you signed up for Obamacare? No, I haven't signed up. <laughs> I haven't. I, I decided, I think I'm going to pass. Yeah. But what, I want something that works. But what would be what would be wrong with a, a, a medical system that does uh, treat people uh, reasonably at a cost? But medical well, I agree with are that. crazy. I agree. I, I agree, and I, I fully subscribe to the fact that we have to take care of the people. But there are much better systems. The people that had good plans are losing those plans, and they have deductibles that are through the roof. They can't have their own doctor. People are being really badly hurt, and it doesn't really kick in until 16, and it's going to have a devastating effect on the economy. You can have a better right, plan uh, for see, I don't. I don't know enough about it to say that's not true, but I think that's not true. Okay. <laughs> that's what I felt like I was wanting. Like, you know, Jimmy Fallon isn't David Letterman, but like, maybe get like 5% of the way there. <laughs> like, make an effort. Uh, so I, I, that was where I was coming from. Is that, That's his, his biggest flaw, and it, it, it speaks to something broader in the primetime network late night 
landscape, which is that we don't have someone who is really good at interviewing in the same way that David Letterman was. And we should also talk about Saturday Night Live beyond just the hosting. I also think that, you know, overall, um, you know, the plus side has been the impressions have been great, um, especially the last-minute edition of Alec Baldwin, I think, sort of really changed the game uh, for SNL. I do think Weekend Update has had probably one of its weakest cycles ever. <laughs> it just seems completely sort of milk-toasty and sort of repetitive and very little memorable, and, and it just political hue. And he had most of the sketches that SNL has done, save for a few, um, like the Kellyanne Conway Day Off uh, free tape was great, and a few others uh, with the debates. Uh, it's been sort of a weak season. It just feels like the people who are writing SNL don't really have a strong uh, interest in or, or passion for writing about politics, at least not in a funny way. One of the best things they did politically, and this was, it feels like it was seven years ago, <laughs> back when Bernie Sanders was still in the race, but when they did that Curb Your Enthusiasm parody that was just incredible when, when Larry David was hosting. I mean, that kind of stuff, I think they've been really sharp. Mr. Sanders, can I get you a coffee? A coffee, a coffee. Yeah, you know what? I'll have a coffee with uh, whole milk. Sorry, I think we only have 2%. 2%? No, no, no. If I'm going to have milk, I'll have milk. Thank you very much. Barry! 2%. What, What's what this I hear about you not shaking your constituents' hands? <laughs> you can't do that. No, no, you don't understand, Jeff. She gave me a cough and shake. Sure, it wasn't a cough and a wipe and a shake? No, no, there was no wipe, definitely no wipe. She didn't have the decency to give me a wipe. You are wipe. such an Bernie. You know what? This is why nobody likes you, because you're an Oh, I'm... Yeah, you got it. You are. You are. People love me, okay? I have more individual donations than any candidate in history, and I don't take from millionaires and billionaires. The average donation is just... 27. Yeah, no, because you say it every time you're on TV. Um, but I totally agree with you about Weekend Update. It's probably one of the weakest parts of the of the show on a regular basis. I'm hoping by the time people have listened to this, we will all be talking about the amazing return of uh, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler to do uh, the Bitches Get Stuff Done, uh, <laughs> uh, which, if you might remember, was... I think in 2008, yeah. <laughs> she, they did an amazing sort of uh, defense of Hillary, and I'm hoping there will be some sort of return slash takedown of Trump that will sort of set the world afire, along potentially with a cameo from Hillary. But so, so for anyone listening to this podcast uh, after this weekend's SNL, uh, there's an asterisk attached to everything I've just said about SNL. Maybe they'll redeem themselves with one of the most amazing episodes in SNL history. Jen, you, you wrote a piece last week about the moments on scripted TV this year that have foreshadowed the election, or not just this year, but even in years past. And I was wondering if you mm-hmm. could talk about a few particularly prescient examples. Sure. Well, I, I really looked at six shows that stood out to me, uh, going back as far as Parks and Recreation, which, uh, you know, Mike Schur has said, we weren't trying to be prescient, and, and, and I don't think that we were necessarily prescient about um, the season four when Leslie was running for city council and facing off against Bobby Newport, who was played by Paul Rudd. Uh, and in a lot of ways, the Bobby Newport character was um, not exactly Trump-esque um, because he was really just kind of a privileged um, idiot. Uh, and he wasn't necessarily mean-spirited. Uh, in a lot of ways, I think he was more um, of a riff on George W. Bush than anything else. But if you go back and you look at, for example, the debate episode from that season and the things that people are saying, um, like Catherine Hahn's character, who's... Uh, running the campaign for Bobby Newport. And she's like, if he strings two sentences together, the press is going to say he was amazing. And it just you hear things like that and you're like, wow, that sounds a lot like what, we, what we've what we been witnessing. Um, 
And then more recent stuff. I mean, Scandal was very deliberately uh, playing with Trump as a figure um, in its most recent season. And so some of the things they were pulling from the headlines as they were happening. But what's so interesting is that um, these issues have continued to be a part of the race and and increasingly so even after the the scandal season was was long over. And now I'm forgetting the name of the candidate. Hollis Doyle. Yes, thank you. Hollis Doyle. So they try to get him out of the Republican race and they they start digging up dirt on him and they they run down this list at one point like, oh, he's been accused of being a rapist. He has, uh, you know, stolen taxpayer money, Uh, you know, and and, and these are all things that have been said about Trump and that have been said even more loudly (laughs) um, since that season was on. And of course, on Scandal, that actually got Doyle out of the race. In real life, um, no one seems to be disturbed by these things. Uh, But I think the one that was most interesting to me was Veep, because uh, as somebody who lives in the D.C. area, knows people who work in government, I've been told on more than one occasion that of all the political shows, Veep gets it the most right. Uh, And, you know, certainly some of the people who are consultants on that show have a lot of experience in that arena, and and they're bringing some of that... um, to the scripts. But, uh, you know, this past season, uh, Selena Meyer was, she had already inherited the role of president. And this season she was actually running um, for the office um, because there was a tie in the previous season. And there are things that happened that ended up actually coming true in real life. And and my favorite example, there's a, an episode called uh, Nevada, Nevada. And there's a running joke throughout that entire episode. And I'm sure this is something that Joe appreciates as as someone who lives in Nevada, about how to pronounce the name of the state. If President Meyer were to win a recount, she wins Nevada's six electoral votes and therefore oh. the presidency. Oh. All the networks no, no. have it. New York no. Times as well. Oh, oh my God. God. <laughs> oh, wait. Wait a minute. Is this really happening? I mean, I, do we actually have a chance in Nevada? Nevada. Oh, my God. I get to be president. I don't have to move. What do we do? Well, ma'am, we need to be sure that when we get on no, the ground... No, shut up, Ken. You already lost Nevada for me once. Nevada. Ben, what do we do? What uh, do we we do? need to get a hold of our people in, in Nevada. Don't, don't. And then last month, here comes Donald Trump doing a rally saying it's pronounced Nevada. Heroin overdoses are surging and meth overdoses in Nevada. Nevada. And you know what I said? You know what I said? I said when I came out here, I said... Nobody says it the other way. It has to be Nevada, right? And if you don't say it correctly, and it didn't happen to me, but it happened to a friend of mine. He was killed. And then there was this argument in Senator Harry Reid saying, actually, no, that is not how you pronounce it. I'm like, this was in an episode of Veep. What is happening? (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, and then there was a whole other episode, and since we're allowed to curse on this, I I guess I can say it, called Cuntgate. That was entirely about the fact that that word had been used about Selena Meyer and Politico had leaked the fact that her own staffers were calling her that word. And she launches an investigation like who's been saying it? It turns out everybody has. Um, But that is uh, using lady parts in that kind of way was reflected again in the whole grabbing the pussy thing that happened with with Donald Trump. Obviously, totally different context. But. And then there's a monologue that Julia Louis-Dreyfus delivers in that episode. Um, you know, people don't want me to be in this office. Why? Because it's how they feel about women. And I was like, wow, that is, I mean, it, it reminded me of Hillary Clinton when I saw it X months ago, um, but it, it still resonates now. So there's just all these weird synchronicities that either were done on purpose or I think accidental uh, that are eerie. It's an eerie world, Jen. It is. <laughs> it's only going to get eerier. I yes. Assume.
That's just about it for this week's show. But before we go, it's time for our second news segment. We're calling this one the Aria, and the idea is simple. This is a space for one of us to take a few minutes to talk to you all directly about something going on in television right now that we feel passionately about. Matt's going to give us the first installment of the Aria. Matt, take it away. The premiere of Louis back in 2010 is looking more and more like a Big Bang, one that unleashed a constellation of new possibilities for filmmakers. Louis C.K. cut a deal with his network, FX, giving him the right to final cut over every episode, as long as he kept the total budget for each one under $250,000, a pittance in TV terms. Incredibly, FX agreed to this, and the result was one of the most experimental scripted programs to hit commercial TV since Moonlighting 30 years earlier. A lot of the time, Louis didn't work, but when it did, it was glorious, and even when it didn't work, it kind of worked. It was a laboratory, and laboratories are places where you can do experiments, and sometimes experiments don't work. The fifth season offered what was basically a set of movies broken into pieces, some of which cast other actors as Louis. Sometimes Louie told a self-contained story that took up all 30 minutes of the show's allotted time, but other episodes told two stories, and they were not only self-contained little short films, they were often radically different from each other in style. He might do a long dream sequence set on a subway car, and then, after that, a vignette about Louie's relationship with his best friend and crush object, Pamela, played by Pamela Adlon. The show never had a big audience, and a good number of the people who were watching it had serious problems with it. There was an undercurrent of bitter white guy misogyny that seemed both self-justifying and self-lacerating. There was an arc where Louis seemed as if he was on the verge of raping Pamela, only to have her end up violating him after making up his face so that he resembled a stereotypical girl. The entirely subjective nature of the storytelling meant that Louis C.K. could kind of let himself off the hook for anything that people found offensive by saying, basically, well, none of this is real. It's all the contents of my head. Whether that seemed a defense or a cop-out probably depended on what you expected or wanted out of the show, and from art in general. And this was art. In retrospect, the most important thing about Louis isn't what it achieved or accomplished, but simply what it was. It really did unlock the door for other possible ways to tell stories on television, more personal ways, more subjective ways. What he was doing was what you might call auteur-driven filmmaking, but he just happened to do it on television. At some point after the turn of the millennium, the independent film scene in the United States started to dry up and people began to ask themselves, where can I see the kinds of movies that I saw in the 90s? Increasingly, after 2010, the answer was on cable, and Louis C.K. had a lot to do with that. In 2012, we saw the debut of Lena Dunham's Girls, which was uh, very Louis-esque in a lot of ways. And today we have an unbelievable number of variants of the Louis formula, all of them extremely personal. None of them have any comparison to Louis except the fact that the creators seem genuinely in control of the product, and what's on screen seems to express their personalities in a very direct, unadorned way. You've got High Maintenance on HBO, you've got Maria Bamford's Lady Dynamite, you've got Joe Swanberg's anthology series Easy, and you've got Aziz Ansari's Master of None. But the two finest examples of variations on the Louis formula are both on FX, Louis' old network, Donald Glover's Atlanta, about a young poor man on the fringes of Atlanta's hip-hop scene, and Pamela Adlon's Better Things, about a middle-aged actress in Hollywood. 
These were the best new sitcoms of the fall, and they only continued to improve as the series went on. They're high watermarks for half-hour, auteur-driven TV comedy. In retrospect, it seems inevitable that they would end up on FX. Like Louie, Atlanta and Better Things are indie film-style statements by their stars, respectively rapper and community cast member Glover and longtime actress-comedian Adlin, who was, of course, probably Louis C.K.'s most important collaborator. C.K. is a co-creator, co-writer, and executive producer of Better Things and directed the pilot. And like Louie, both these series run 30 minutes minus commercials. They mine observational humor from daily life in the manner of brainy and abrasive stand-up comedy, and they veer between slapstick, sadness, atmospheric beauty, and naturalistic, just-hanging-out characterizations. Both shows concern themselves equally with creativity and parenting. Adlin's character, Sam Fox, is a single mom raising three daughters, Glover's Ernest Earn Marks is a single dad whose ex has custody of their toddler-age girl. And both shows follow Louis' edict of letting comedy emerge from the personality and preoccupations of the creator's star, while making apparently no concessions to commercial formula. There are wrenching encounters with eccentric cameo characters, so incredibly surreal that they almost seem to have been hallucinated. And the pilots of both series began mid-scene, so abruptly that you might have worried that the video was glitchy. And then they continued through mosaics of moments that seemed to be arranged intuitively rather than in lockstep obedience to the demands of plot. But even though the show's artistic lineage is obvious, Atlanta and Better Things take Louis C.K.'s refinements to a new level. They merge them with worldviews that you rarely see represented on TV, and they tell their stories with such economy and grace that you might feel as if a new language were being worked out before your eyes. As impressive as these characters and stories are, the filmmaking is even more remarkable. I've been a TV critic for over 20 years, and I've never seen directing and editing in a half-hour series as minimalist, precise, yet filled with feeling as what has been achieved by Adlin and Glover on Better Things and Atlanta. This is the closest that scripted TV has gotten to the spare literary fiction of Charles Portis or Raymond Carver, who could sum up a relationship in five sentences of description and a little bit of ping-pong dialogue. Miraculously, though, this economy of gesture never makes it feel as if Atlanta or Better Things were just trying to leapfrog to the next plot point or cheap laugh, as is often the case in today's sitcom landscape of gag-driven, hyperactively edited, remember-when-this-happened comedy. In fact, there are long stretches of both shows where you could say that, quote-unquote, nothing is happening, if by nothing you mean a shot of friends smoking weed in the suburban Atlanta countryside at Magic Hour while cicadas were, or a woman watching a maybe-boyfriend drive home after a disastrous dinner, his car slowly vanishing into the Los Angeles smog. These series have the pulse of life. That's it for this week's show. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Sam Dingman and Jordan Bell. Laura Mayer is our director of production, and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Jen Cheney, and you can find me on Twitter at Cheney J. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.